I'm here with Dr. Jim Papandrea. He's a uh, he has a he's a professor of uh, church history and historical theology, and you've also recently written a book about um, superheroes and drawing out some Christian symbolism in there. And um, so I thought that'd be worth talking about because that's kind of the uh, the currency of our culture today. <laughs> Maybe it is a good way to explain Christianity in some yeah. ways. Um, so what's the basic premise of your book? Well, the, uh, the book is about the fact that we have these popular stories. They, they're they're the, the mythologies of our culture, and they are hero stories. And um, in these hero stories, the, the heroes are savior figures who often uh, have parallels with, uh, with Christ. And so uh, the book kind of analyzes the different stories uh, from science fiction and comic books and superheroes and uh, just asks the question, okay, if these, are, if these heroes are Christ figures, if they're saviors, how do they measure up to the real Christ? And, and what kind of message are they teaching? Uh, what kind of worldview is, is sort of lying underneath as an assumption? And, and um, are they proposing uh, something that will lead us closer to Christ or farther away? Right. I, I know when I was growing up, I remember Superman was like the king of the hill, and that was the one... I wanted to be like you'd think about and and I noticed like for me thinking about it later it's in some ways it feeds something kind of bad in us and that's like self uh, you know we're self uh, sufficient you know we can rely on our own strength and yeah. nothing can harm us right you know, except Krypton <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I, I find that in spiritual life sometimes yeah it's like God make me strong so I won't fall but I don't stay in that area of dependence very long. You know, I just want to be strong and then I kind of run my own life. Is that kind of a weakness in the Superman imagery? I think so. I mean, to the extent that we are trying to imitate uh, the heroes, then it's, it's almost like we're trying to make ourselves our own savior. In other words, right. I'm going to save the day. Right. But, you know, deep in the human psyche, whether people want to admit it or not, is is the realization that you know we can't save ourselves and we need a savior we need someone else to save us we need god to save us in the person of jesus and so um yeah i mean i think there's there's something in all of us that that uh is attracted to that kind of power i mean this is why something like harry potter is so popular with kids i mean what kid doesn't fantasize about having magical powers and and to a certain extent that might not be too harmful but if we take it too far and make it about ourselves, then it becomes uh, a desire for power over others right. or, uh, or things like that. And that's when it gets dangerous. Yeah. And it almost like you need the Krypton in the story to make it some kind of story with Superman because <laughs> he's so invincible and powerful. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I always say if you, if you have Superman, you don't need Batman. Yeah. Superman can pretty much do everything. And, <laughs> and on the one hand, that makes him a better sort of parallel for Jesus Christ because he, he, he is so powerful that he's almost divine. But on the other hand, it is harder for them to keep writing stories because when, you're, when your hero is that powerful, the only way to amp up the threat level is to make him continuously having to fight aliens and things like that. And so right. it becomes kind of bizarre after a while. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think, unfortunately, the drive for more and more sequels to these films 
uh, has distorted, you know, some of the charm of the stories. Yeah. And I really, I don't know if I've even seen one of them, but the, like the Avenger movies where they all come together. Mm -hmm. Is there some good imagery there for us out of the communio of the church or something? That you know, I, w I wish I could say yes, but I, I think it's hard to find because um, given the, the differences in the different powers, um, you know, you, you would think, oh, this is a good opportunity to, to teach a message about how we all bring different gifts and we can work together. But, you know, it doesn't work in the films to, for me because this is one of those cases where you end up with too many cooks in the kitchen and when it comes to superheroes, more is not better. Because <laughs> uh, again, you know, when, if you have Superman, you don't need Batman. If you have Captain Marvel, you don't need the guy with the arrows. You know, you just don't. And so it right. becomes a struggle to give these, uh, dare I call them, lesser heroes uh, something to do, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, in the, the one of the latest ones, Endgame, they literally had to find an excuse to make Captain Marvel be out of town for most of the movie so that the other heroes would have anything to do. Right, right. It seems like to me, I remember as a boy when that first Superman movie came out in 77, I think it was, Christopher Reeve, and there was something, you know, I, I think that was good about it. You know, he was honest. He believed in the American way. And it, was, it was just a great kind of pure hero. And I, I think that is important in Christianity. You know, as the older we get, too, sometimes repeated failures in the spiritual life or trying to overcome vices and stuff, we can kind of lose hope that that's even possible. Mm. But we say in the church, there's real saints. There's real sanctity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that, yeah, virtue is possible and, uh, and, and we ought to go after it. And I think what happens in our culture is um, that there's a kind of laziness that makes people want to despair of virtue, throw up their hands and, and give up so that they don't have to strive for it. And then the way that comes out in the popular culture is that we get um, more and more anti-heroes. Mm -hmm. The flawed character who is nevertheless still the hero at the end of the day, which I think gives people sort of permission to, you know, to, to write off virtue as if it's saying, well, you can still be the hero, even if you're messed up, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. They they give like the villains the best lines, and yeah. make them the most attractive, you know, in some way. And uh, and I, I that that makes sense though that you have to do that to sell it. It seems like evil, really, when you get it's really boring and kind of flat. And one there's no you know if there's a struggle for good, if you have a character wanting to be good and there's a struggle, you know, I can identify with that. I can be inspired by that. You know. Yeah. But just like looking at the evil guy, there's nothing inspiring unless you give him the cleverest lines, the coolest stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's true. And, and the way the stories are written now um, in order to, I suppose, heighten the tension and, um, and in, you know, introduce surprises into the story and things like that, what they end up doing is writing a story that has the hero um, almost losing most of the time. And sometimes, and sometimes in the end, the hero only wins out of sheer luck or some coincidence or some deus ex machina or something. But mm -hmm. the point is, is that it's almost like, yeah, evil's really stronger than good, but but good won this time, and you know, um, and and that's that. But but maybe not next time. So you know, um, buy your tickets for the sequel. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, right. so you know, because if they defeat evil once and for all, there's no sequel. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I didn't see the movie, but I think it was Captain Marvel. I saw some reviews, like, you know, Catholic bloggers and stuff, talking about having, like, really strong feminist themes and things. Did you see that, or...? Well, I didn't. I didn't see anything that um, that struck me as as very strong one way or the other. Um, I mean, Captain Marvel is is um, Marvel's answer to Superman. You know, DC has Superman, so Marvel's sort of you know virtually omnipotent superhero is Captain Marvel, and um, and uh, you know that otherwise would have been a man playing that role, but they cast a woman in the role. Um, I saw it. I liked the movie. I thought it was very well done, well written. There wasn't anything off-putting about that aspect to me. Um, was the original character a man? Though? Yeah, I believe oh, so in the comic okay. book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Captain Marvel's a, a guy. Well, sometimes that, that bugs me when you see some strong agenda put in it, but I don't know. I, I know I heard that it was, like, I guess with the latest Star Wars movies and uh, and having, you know, the heroine with the force is powerful yeah. and all that stuff. Uh, but sometimes I feel like they're just almost like scratching out, you know, male actor, put in female actor, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that may be. Um, uh, but I didn't think that it was, uh, it was too heavy handed in the, in the actual execution of the story. Yeah. Uh, although having said that, I mean, there is a sense in which the last couple of years have really been, um, you know, can I say girl power? I mean, because you had Wonder Woman, um, you have Captain Marvel cast as a woman, Doctor Who cast as a woman, um, and then even in Aquaman, the women save the day. Yeah. Is, uh, and so, is, is it, I didn't like Aquaman. I didn't think it was very good, but you have this sort of, you know, muscle-bound, hunky dude playing Aquaman, uh -huh. and at the end of the day, the women save him, <laughs> you know? So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess times are changing. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, coming back to Christianity, and, and we were talking about this on the show a little bit, you know, the Blessed Mother, you know, she is the model disciple and, you know, without sin, never committed sin, immaculate conception. And, and yet her victory and her achievement, so to speak, is through faith and surrender. Yeah. It's like the anti-Hollywood method of heroism, you know? That's she doesn't right. have a lot of, she's not a lot of scenes in the gospel and she's not out preaching or going mission work or something like that. Although some of the women did, Mary Magdalene mm -hmm. went to France and things. But, um, you know, she, she, her, her strength was her faith and surrender to be the handmaid of the Lord. Yeah. And that's kind of an untwisting of what we hear today all the time. Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, her, you know, what we call her fiat, when uh, mm -hmm. fiat is the, the Latin word, let it be, right? And when she says, you know, let it be to, done to me according to your word, I mean, that's her submission to the will of God. And it is in that that she is an example for all of us. But, you know, in addition to that, I see her as kind of bookending the, 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 the ministry of Jesus. Mm -hmm. she, she kicks it off at the wedding at Cana. By yeah. her intercession, he changes water into wine. Yeah. And then she's there at the end as well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, that the, the, this idea of Mary as, as mother of the church um, is very real to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a model, I, I think in some ways, yeah, she needs to be preached a lot today just to 
give us a, a model that I, I, I always tell this story. I, I was on a pilgrimage with a group to uh, the Holy Land and we went to Nazareth and we're outside the big basilica. Steve Ray was leading it and he was telling us, you know, this is where the cave of the Annunciation was that, um, you know, there's like 50 families in the town at the time of Jesus. And this is like 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And she's like this young woman and has no religious authority, no kind of cultural power at all. And yet the incarnation takes place in her womb. You know? Yeah, right, right. It's like, I remember it just kind of shook me that we're all like in this spiritual rat race, you know, trying to do more, achieve more, be more efficient, you know, whatever, whatever. And, uh, and like these people had radical humility. You know? Yeah. That, yeah, we, we we try to achieve things, and and for her, just by being obedient and yeah. and submitting to God, it came to her. Yeah, she wasn't even saying, "I'm going to do this for you, God," but let this be done unto right, me. Right, right. Yeah. In, in a passive voice, right. 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 And, yeah. You know, well, let's talk about Star Wars a second. You know, I the first three Star Wars, <laughs> that was my era growing up, and and somebody pointed out. And it really caught me that like one of the great virtues of that movie is the bond of friendship, that they sacrifice themselves, you know, take risks for each other to bail each other out of this situation. And and even like the Incredible Hulk, you know, the the horrible TV series, which I love, <laughs> like from the late 70s. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and there's something charming about it that he, and I think what it is is that he's always like a force for good. It's just, he's going to come into the situation, he's a drifter, and he's going to help somebody. Yeah. And I watched one of the later movies that came out, a TV movie, and he kind of was like a little messed up. And he, he was like living with this woman and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it completely lost all the power of yeah. it. And I was yeah. amazed at how that simple little shift made it, so much less compelling. Yeah. You know? Well, it's like what we were saying earlier. The power is in the virtue. Yeah. And when you take that out and you say, well, that doesn't matter anymore, then it does lose some of its power. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think also that, you know, even though our human nature, our fallen human nature, has this sort of tendency to want to want to avoid the responsibility of trying to be virtuous, um, we still crave it. We still long for it. We still yeah. know that 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 we need that. Yeah, I heard somebody it was in one of these documentaries. I think about like these uh, mafia figures, and and they said, you know, when you hear these guys talk towards the end of their life, none of them are really bragging about like the acts of violence they did. They'll part to other stuff. Maybe they help somebody with their money or something like that. And I thought that is so true. At the end of the day. Hollywood might make it look glamorous, but you know how ugly it was in real life, you know, when we were in sin and stuff. And it's it's really what's going to be something we're proud of is anything virtuous that we did in life. Yeah, yeah. And that's what certainly our superheroes should show. But, you know, and on Star Wars, one thing that seems to me that's kind of hinting at truth is is just like the power of a force that we need something bigger than ourselves mm -hmm. to help us. And that's a fundamental theme in Christianity, isn't it? So. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, there's there's always a, been a lot of debate about the force and what is it and how, you know, is it is it godlike or um, 
I mean, it's true. We always want to belong to something. And, and I think what you were saying earlier about the, the friendship bonds that are formed among the, the characters in the story, that really follows through a lot of the, a lot of the films. And I think that does tap into a, a kind of a universal human need for, you know, belonging to a family, belonging to a group of friends. You know, yeah. why, why was the show Friends so popular? I mean, it's obvious because yeah. we all want to have friends like that and be part of a group. Um, my problem with the Force is that the Force is impersonal. The Force doesn't love you. Right. You know, God loves you. Yeah. And so, you know, just being a part of something greater than yourself will fulfill some of those needs. But if that thing that you're a part of is a, you know, a, a street gang or something, you know, then that's, that's not really, um, you know, it's, a, it's more about being a part of the right thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I guess like Obi-Wan coming back to talk to him gave some warmth to it, a little bit of relationship. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and when I talk about it in the book, um, you know, uh, Obi-Wan is the Christ figure that I focus on in that, that chapter in the book. Although, you know, throughout the, all of the films, different characters take on that role at different times. So, uh, you know, you could talk about Luke, Luke Skywalker as a Christ figure at other times as well. Yeah. Uh, so they do, they do kind of move in and out of that role, um, but uh, but it, fatherhood's such a deep theme, right? In those movies, like I am your father. Yeah, you know, right, right. And you know, this is comes from a very sort of you know archetypal um, uh, approach to to mythology. You know, the idea that that uh, part of the coming of age of of any hero on a journey is to face their father and differentiate from their father and reconcile with their father. So there's a lot of these themes are in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think another thing I identify with too is like you need that, I don't know if it's just a guy thing, but you need that approval from your father. I think about your life and stuff. Like if you don't have it, there's something kind of unmoored about you. Yeah. Yeah. You want to know who your father is and and that guidance. I mean, it's a powerful image of God the Father, you know, our human fathers, mm. and that kind of blessing they give to us on our lives and yeah. that guidance. Yeah, at the beginning, or, you know, chronologically, episode four, um, Luke Skywalker is craving any information he can get about his father. Yeah. He wants to know his father, and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi is sort of hiding his father from him. Right. Yeah. Right. I had something funny. I was reading this article a couple of years ago, I think. I think it was the story of the of the woman that was um her like her sons were at Notre Dame University and and had some young college women like dressed immodestly at mass and and she wrote some kind of open letter about this call for modesty. I'm getting this right. I think she referenced Princess Leia in Return uh, of the Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's like in Job of the Hutt's. Yeah, the, the, the bikini. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was so funny the way she said it. And it was like this simple reference about how shocking it was. And I remember as a kid watching it and not being attuned to real modesty issues or whatever, but just having that sense as a kid is like, 
we've we've done something terrible to Princess Leia by presenting her this yeah, way, yeah. you know? It's like a diminishment of her character or whatever. Yeah, I mean, she was in prison, blah, 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 but still, yeah. the Hollywood movie presented her this way. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I think that's the point, is that she was she was dressed that way against her will, that, yeah. that, and she was chained up, so that was part of her enslavement. Her immodesty was part of her enslavement. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I think, in a way, in a weird way, the film almost sort of reinforces the right way of thinking by saying, well, if this is immodest, we're supposed to see it as an injustice being done to her that she's sort of on display like this. Right, right. Has, you know, has these movies been like, when you were growing up, a big inspiration? Is that why you would write on it today? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, uh, I've always been a fan of science fiction and, um, and, and the superhero stories. Um, and I think I've always especially been a big fan of time travel stories. Hmm. And so I'm a, you know, anything time travel and I'm in. And so, um, and, and of course, you know, um, I'm, I'm also very interested in theology and, and understanding God and Christ. And so, you know, you put those two things together and it's like, uh, it's a great combination for me. Yeah. What was some of your time travel movies you liked? Well, I mean, um, I actually read the book as a kid, The Time Machine, the original one uh, by H.G. Wells, and was very disappointed to find out later that H.G. Wells was an atheist and anti-church. Mm. Um, but, I, but I liked that, and then there was a movie made, I think, in the 60s, and I talk about this in the book, of The Time Machine, which wasn't great. But then there was a remake done with Guy Pearce, um, you know, a decade or so ago. And I thought that was very well done. And I thought the writers of that added a really interesting element, which kind of clued me into why I think I like time travel movies so much. Because, the, you know, there's this, um, there's this idea of the possibility of fixing your mistakes. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's even really possible, even within the different... Um, universes of the of the time travel stories, but the, this idea that that you could go back and undo a regret is fascinating to me, and yeah. I think it is to a lot of people. Yeah, and I even love the I love the movies that too, like will span a long period of time, and you can see like consequences. Mm, right, and to me that's always fascinating. Why? Why? How did this choice affect us? And why did this person do this? Yeah, this, this guy didn't do this, and. What are those effects? That is an interesting story. You know, I was, I remember in Contact, the movie, that mm, uh, yeah. doesn't it end up with fatherhood that they, I don't know if it was like, pro, that the alien was like projecting that image of father, or like familiar images. There of, it seems to me there was yeah. something about that. I have to be honest, what I remember about Contact was that it was really long and not good enough to be that long. In other words, like it was like two and a half hours and, and you know, I wanted the last hour back of my life. Um, but I can't remember too much about that movie well, that, otherwise. I remember liking that because I know, you know, Carl Sagan, atheist and all this. And, but at the end of the day, like this alien super being presented himself as the woman scientist's father. Yeah. And that there's... Again, that's so archetypal. You know, yeah, I, yeah. why do we choose image God as Father? Why has God revealed Himself as Father? Right. And there's a real, there's a real kind of natural 
reasoning behind mm -hmm. that, that you know, there's something about Father that represents God to us. And uh, well, That's right. And I think, you know, that, that, that these things are in our psyche and that's why they come out in our stories. You know, it's, it's, it's that, that God is like a father to us. And so because of that, we as human beings write stories with, with these issues of fatherhood because we long for that connection. Yeah. Now you mentioned Star Trek. I grew up in a house, um, I got a brother two years older and my dad, um, they love Star Trek. And so I, uh, I got to appreciate it more as time goes on. But I remember when it hit me, I think it was sometime I had this conversion experience at college, but I remember thinking, to me, it seemed like one of the great messages there for them was that like technology could save us. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. And that's kind of poisonous in some ways. And no, you're absolutely right, because it's, it's this, uh, based on this idea that really science is the ultimate authority here. And if we yeah. just follow the science, right. uh, science will be our savior. Technology will be our savior. And of course, as you know, I mean, the whole Star Trek universe is is based on this assumption that uh, if, if humanity is only allowed to, to really progress and flourish, it will outgrow religion. Mm -hmm. Because in the Star Trek universe, humanity uh, has created for itself a world where there's no hunger, no poverty, uh, no war, and also no religion. Because there's this assumption that religion was holding them back all this time, you know. But what we find out, though, is that without virtue, that technology becomes a threat to mankind, you know, in a sense. Yeah. Like, you could look at like nuclear power and stuff like that. Sure, yeah. And, and actually, you know, there's a whole sort of subgenre within science fiction that deals with those questions, this, this idea of, you know, science gone too far. Mm -hmm. Going all the way back to movies like, well, the, the very first science fiction story ever, Frankenstein. Uh, or Forbidden Planet. I mean, these are all stories of, of science gone bad. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, more modern versions like The Terminator and other things where, you know, people are trying to create artificial intelligence. And then when they do, the artificial intelligence wants to destroy humanity. You know, this, mm -hmm. these sorts of things like, will our own creations destroy us? This yeah, question. yeah. Yeah, I think of... Uh... Like in Star Trek, the prime directive, right? They can't interfere with any other culture or society. Yeah. But that's so different. But from they the... do every week. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, it's so different from Christianity because like we're forming missionaries and people right. are like, giving their lives to change culture right. for the good. That's you know? right. That's right. And there is an assumption under there that, you know, I'm sure if you were, ask, if you were to ask the writers of Star Trek uh, or some of these shows, you know, uh, is 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 the spread of Christianity a good thing? They they sort of have a feeling that maybe it's not that uh, that they would they would want to blame um, you know genocide and war and things on uh, on religion and uh, and yet you know it is a part of our calling to spread the gospel and to grow the church. Yeah, you know I, I was thinking I, this is not I guess a, equivalent to technology, but you know, we had the, the big recession hit with the, the big savings and loan debacle, like in 2008 or something. Yeah. But I remember Pope Benedict making a comment about it, and he cited greed, you know, as being part of the cause of it. Yeah. 
And I was, and I, you know, some people would say too that it's, it's like the government, you know, propping up these bad loans and eventually it collapses. But it seemed like to make it collapse, you had to have greed come in there and extort the system, right? Yeah, uh, right, right. And, and to me, that kind of struck me because you can have like this real efficient economy and all these protections and computer trading and all this, and it should work, right? It should work. We can connect everybody together. I, I was listening to something the other day about the history of like time pieces and how how that was that helped the economy because you know it made everything more efficient you're mm -hmm. going to show up and do this together yeah. you know right, right. yeah <laughs> it's just very simple you know i never thought of that but yet even with all the efficiency when greed gets in there it burns it to the ground you yeah. Know? yeah without virtue you know we, we just tear it up because greed turns it into a situation where you know, in order for me to win, you have to lose, right? Yeah. So then it becomes that kind of yeah. uh, competition and selfishness and, yeah. yeah. And you see that in the superheroes, right? The some that fall from grace, so to speak, and right. they just become the worst enemies. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you're also a professor of historical theology. And I remember when I was in seminary, we had one professor that he taught that way. And what I, I liked about it was, you know, he was like he taught us a Christology course, and he just drew heavily from these early church councils and mm -hmm. like like heresies and problems or difficulties they were trying to address. And these are the formulations of the faith, right? They come. Yeah. Up. Is that basically how it works in historical theology? Is it? Well, it is because um, you know it was during that time period in the early church when the church really had to. Um, define itself, define its beliefs, define what it meant to be a Christian uh, through the uh, writings of the church fathers and then the church councils and, um, you know, clarify, well, you know, if this, if this Arius guy over here is teaching, uh, for example, that Jesus was a, a mere human who became a god, how do we know that's not right? Well, we have to sort that out and we have to say, no, Jesus is not a human who became a god. He's God who became a human. That's a very different thing. And, you know, so they both can't be right. So Arius, you know, you're, you're wrong. And, and so now we're going to have this, this creed that lays it all out. Uh, and, and so in a sense, I mean, you know, the, the early church fathers were having to literally define Christianity. Yeah. And we define church fathers as being really smart and holy guys or what's the definition yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know it's a it's kind of a vague term but it, the church fathers are the um the bishops priests lay catechists um and and others from the time period of the early church who wrote important documents who who went to these councils and were in on the debates and and through their writings and their their uh councils um, they have shaped what we call the tradition of the church. And, um, you know, when we say the early church, we're talking about the first few hundred years, maybe up to the, the, uh, the fifth century, um, the beginning of the church. And most of the church fathers were bishops, um, but, but not all. And there are some church mothers, but, uh, you know, far fewer women actually wrote documents that we have, but there are a few. There are some important documents written by women that, that also become part of our tradition. Um, but that's who the church fathers are. Yeah. 
And doesn't Vatican II use the phrase like they are witnesses to tradition? Like they have a special, I guess, I don't know, but they, you don't simply identify them with tradition, right? But they. Well, not, in, in, not individually in the sense that, it, you know, it's not the case that, you know, everything um, St. Irenaeus wrote mm -hmm. is automatically part of our church tradition. Um, right. Because there were things he wrote that, well, there were, he, sometimes he was just wrong on historical, you know, facts right. and and um so these these church fathers aren't in, infallible as individuals mm -hmm. uh, even saint augustine um the church did not accept everything he wrote right. uh there are some things he wrote that the church rejected so it's really about their the consensus of where they were in agreement that becomes our tradition and in the case of arius it was like a, a large percentage of the church Right, it fallen into the Arian heresy. Or is it? It's hard to say. I mean, there's you know there's there's the famous quote uh, by I think it's Athanasius who said you know um, we we woke up to to find the whole world had converted to Arianism, uh, but that's a hyperbole. I mean that's mm -hmm. that's just a complete exaggeration. Um, so so on the one hand, the the so-called Arian controversy was really only something that took place in the eastern part of the empire. Um, for most of the time period that it was an issue. Uh, the Western Church was really not affected by it all that much. Um, but even within the East, I would not say that a majority of the bishops were Arian. Uh, I've heard people say that, but I don't think it's true. Um, because if, if it were true, then the Council of Nicaea would, would have gone a very different way. Mm. Um, but the Council of Nicaea went the way it did and, and and eventually we had our Nicene Creed because most of the bishops, even in the East, were Orthodox. And then Mary figures large, right, in these councils, a lot of teachings on her. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially the, the Third Ecumenical Council, which is the Council of Ephesus um, in the year 431, there was uh, a debate that had arisen over whether or not it was appropriate to call Mary the mother of God. And, and now what you have to understand is this was not new in the year 431. This was a tradition going back hundreds of years before that. But there was a, a, an important bishop, a bishop of Constantinople called Nestorius, who, uh, who questioned this and started preaching sermons saying, we should not be calling her mother of God. And so uh, a council was held and there's a lot of there's a lot of details I'm skipping over here, but I mean, at the end of the day, the Council of Ephesus declared um, that it is appropriate to call Mary the Mother of God because she is the one who brought into the world um, the the whole person of Christ, including His divinity. Yeah, and it just speaks of like I think the devotion to Mary that the Church has had that they would be compelled to address these issues. That it's just like that devotion just rose up organically that she's a player here. Yeah, know? yeah, it, it really did. And, and you know, it, it's kind of ironic because, you know, sometimes the, the Catholic Church especially gets criticized for, you know, in, uh, imposing rules and kind of a top-down authoritarianism. Um, but then the same people who, who will make that critique will, uh, will criticize the Catholic Church for its devotion to Mary. And, and the truth is, the devotion to Mary was one of the things that was not imposed in a top-down sort of way, but was a grassroots movement that worked its way up and uh, was, you know, of course, accepted by the hierarchy as well. But, um, but it starts in the grassroots. And we, we have 
a document from the second century called the, the Protevangelion, the pre-gospel. It's the prequel to the gospels. And um, it's not an inspired document or anything, but what it does tell us is that in the grassroots of the church, um, people already believed in the Immaculate Conception of Mary and in her uh, perpetual virginity and the, these kinds of things. Um, and, and so that's, you know, th these are not sort of, you know, medieval ideas that were added later. These are, these are, these are beliefs that were there from the beginning of the church. Yeah. I was struck one time, we, we interviewed some missionaries from South America and Peru, and they would go high up into the mountains to these real isolated villages. And, and some of the Catholics had fallen away, evangelicals had gotten there and brought them out. And, um, but this missionary said what they would do is they would have a procession of Our Lady, you know, and give out rosaries. Mm -hmm. And the people would come, just yeah. flock to them. Yeah. And, it was always their devotion to Our Lady just held with them. And, and the other thing they told him, I thought this was so powerful to me, was that he, they, the, the priest would ask him, why did you leave the Catholic Church? And they said, because you weren't here to preach to us. Mm. You know, that that faith yeah. is fostered by preaching and they got to keep, wow. we all have to keep hearing that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it might be consoling too for, for us to remember that, you know, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of debate, and a lot of tensions in the church, yeah. right? in, these, in the early church. That, uh, and even though now, so many councils later and so many things defined, there's still all this tension in the church. That's right, yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it makes uh, people feel any better, they should know that um, if, if we feel like there's a lot of controversy and drama in the church right now, it's not really worse than yeah. it's ever been. There's yeah. always been controversy. There's always been drama. There's always been scandal because yeah. the church is made up of human beings. Can you tell us some, for instances, uh, like along those lines of tensions, scandals that would hearten us a little bit? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, in the third century, um, there is a, uh, one, of, one of the people that I would consider one of the church fathers, a guy named Hippolytus. And he seemed to be a bishop, but we're not exactly sure where he's a bishop. Mm -hmm. And he's in the area of Rome, but he's not a pope. He's not one of the bishops of Rome. But in his writings, he criticizes the bishops of Rome yeah. for what he calls forgiving the sin of adultery. Yeah. So if you read Hippolytus, it makes it sound like these popes are letting people cheat on their spouses and get away with it. Um, but that's not what's going on. What's actually going on is um, people in the church in Rome are uh, experiencing failure of marriages or adultery. Marriages are ending and people are getting remarried. Yeah. And it's interesting because Hippolytus makes the point that even priests are getting remarried <laughs> and are being allowed to retain their faculties in their second marriage. So what Hippolytus is calling forgiving the sin of adultery is second marriages, yeah. even among the clergy. And yet the popes were, um, were, were taking a position of, of mercy and compassion and grace. And so it's, very, it's, it's not too different from some of the <laughs> things that are going on now with Pope Francis and... and uh, and some of the things that he's been saying, and he's been getting a lot of pushback for it, but yeah. it's not new. Yeah. And then even some violence, right? Wasn't Arius 
There was a little fisticuffs there. Well, you know, yeah. So the legend is that uh, that that Saint Nicholas, our Santa Claus, was right. uh, Saint Nicholas of Myra was at the Council of Nicaea, and the legend says that when he met Arius, he punched him in the face. Um, I don't know if that's true, uh, but I'm sure that there were times when when uh, Christians acted less than Christian. Um, there there are a few instances of outbreaks of violence, but for the most part, you know, I will say that. Even under the worst persecution, uh, when the Romans were oppressing uh, the Christians during the time that the church was illegal, um, I can find no time in the early church when Christians uh, said, you know, uh, let's go get them. You know, mm -hmm. took up arms and tried to, you know, uh, fight back or, or, you know, committed violence to pay back violence or anything like that. So um, in, in that case, it was, um, I, I mean, in some, in some ways, the the fact that they were so persecuted meant that they had to be countercultural, and that really empowered them to live, in some ways, um, you know, much more virtuous lives because they knew they were under the microscope. Yeah. Let's talk about like the proclamation of the virginity of Mary. What council was that? Uh, well, the perpetual virginity. Um, I cannot point to a specific council where that was uh, where that was proclaimed per se. That is more of something that that has um, been assumed and been believed, and and that's one of those that's one of those doctrines that actually um, you know Protestants might be surprised to hear this, but the Protestant reformers didn't have a problem with it hmm. uh, for the most part. You know, you can find even sermons by people like Martin Luther proclaiming the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, but, uh, but I don't think that has ever been proclaimed uh, a, a, a dogma in the way that the Immaculate Conception has or the Assumption has. Yeah. Maybe part of the constant teaching that's yeah, part of the yeah, church. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I always find that one harder to preach on, to explain to people. Um, I mean, obviously, her virginity speaks of you know, that her conception is the work of God. It protects right. the divinity of Christ. But also just the virtue itself of virginity, because marriage is a sacrament, it's a great right. good. There's right. nothing wrong with that. Right. But, um, yeah, I always find that challenging to, to preach that. In our culture, it's so foreign, you know, especially. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and you know, in times like the Middle Ages and stuff, it becomes tied up with sort of... Um, recruitment for female vocations, you know, in, in terms yeah. of religious communities. So uh, it's, it's hard to sort that out. Yeah. One last question about, uh, I've heard it said that, you know, after, usually after big ecumenical church councils, there's a period of chaos and almost like a, it takes time to settle down. Is that true historically? There is some truth in that. I mean, um, you know, we, we refer to these ecumenical councils in hindsight. I don't think we can say that anyone, you know, um, started the Council of Nicaea by saying, you know, we, we are now convening an ecumenical council. <laughs> ecumenical means worldwide. And so in hindsight, the fact that all the bishops of the world were invited to the council they didn't all come, yeah. but the fact that all the bishops of the world were invited to these particular councils means that the, the, the conclusions, the canons of these councils are binding on worldwide Christianity. But it is true. It takes a while for that to take hold. And it certainly was the case after the Council of Nicaea because Arianism was 
was condemned as a heresy, but it, it did not go away. And it took a while. So it, it takes time, decades, for these councils and their conclusions to really take root and take hold. And so, you know, when we look back on the Second Vatican Council and we, we see some of the, you know, back and forth that's gone on since then over what is the spirit of the council and what is, you know, what did the council really do and mm -hmm. did not do, um, that does not make Vatican II unique among <laughs> councils, right? Because right. That, that happens. It, it mm -hmm. does take a while um, for it to really take hold. Yeah. And maybe yeah, even to draw the fruits, yeah, the fruits from it, right, and uh, apply them. But I, I, to me, just even in my short priesthood, I, I see the wisdom of it, and and to me, it, I know it, it seems preemptive in a way, even though you can trace a big church renewal, you know, going back to the 1800s and you know building the Vatican II, and George Weigel makes the case of like this big evangelical renewal that you know to to propose the gospel in a way the world can understand it and mm -hmm. hear it but in many ways i feel like it's preemptive i mean it's like vatican II kind of happens in the middle of the sexual revolution you know you could see it say i could see it happen like in the 70s or 80s after all this chaos but yeah. it's trying to to yeah. guide this you know and 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 certainly the pontificate john paul ii and his teaching love and responsibility and yeah and all his teaching on sexual ethics you know, trying to give an answer to uh, the sexual revolution in many ways. But anyway, it is, uh, it's quite a journey, quite a drama, the history yeah, of the church. <laughs> right. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Absolutely. Great to be with you. Mm -hmm.